Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real, and I'm grateful to be with you today. Grateful to have this chance to talk. Today I want to talk about the Tower of Babel, and here's why. Uh, I did an episode some time back where we talked about the flood and how a global flood versus local flood is really, in some ways, a barrier to faith. And and how I think often in Mormonism we have all these really big issues that are a detriment to faith. The Book of Abraham, Joseph Smith's method of translating, his his treasure digging, the kinderhook plates, and how prophets handled race and priesthood, and, and things along those lines. But honestly, if someone came to me and said, Bill, what do you think are the single biggest issues that stand as a barrier to faith in Mormonism? And And I would very quickly tell you that the two that I think I would throw out first and second are the flood, which we've already covered, and the Tower of Babel. Now, let's talk a little bit um, about why that is. And and let's start first by going into Genesis chapter 11 and giving some background. And it starts off in verse 1, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a, a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, let us go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad, abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. And they have all one language. And this they began to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the whole earth. And they left off to build the city. Therefore, in, therefore is the name of it called Babel. Because of the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. And, and then it goes on to tell the, the genealogy of, of those who lived afterward. And it's interesting, right? I mean, this story in the Old Testament is, is what they call an etiological myth. In other words, it's a myth that is created to explain something that's out there that we really don't have any other explanation for. And and the thing that those people couldn't explain 
is why there were so many languages, why there were people living within proximity of each other who spoke completely different languages. And they couldn't make sense of that. In order to make sense of that, they created this etiological myth of the Tower of Babel. And this idea of creating this story that explains why everyone has these different languages. And so if we just take the Old Testament all by itself, then we could look at that Old Testament story and say, look, this is a myth. It's, it's an allegory. It's figurative. And, and there's still, you know, spiritual things we can grapple with within this story, but it's simply just not meant to be taken literally. But, but here's the trouble is that the, the story also makes its way into the Book of Mormon. And, and there's ways in which I think apologists try to kind of explain this away. And I hope to hit on that tonight. But I simply want to say that when we dive in and we're going to be vulnerable and we're going to be authentic, the reality is that the most reasonable, logical, believable ways to approach this leave one having to take this story as not a literal story. But if we do that, then that jumps into the way between us and our faith in the Book of Mormon as a historical account. And so if we go to the Book of Ether... Chapter one, here's what we run into. It starts off, it says, And now I, Moroni, proceed to give an account of those ancient inhabitants who were destroyed by the hand of the Lord upon the face of this north country. So at the very least, let's, let's at least start off here and say Moroni is taking this as a literal story. Now I get it. He's, he's dealing with records that were written long before he's come along. But if the Book of Mormon is true, if Moroni was a real person, then Moroni certainly believes that this story he's about to tell is a literal story. He continues, he says, And I take mine account from the twenty and four plates which were found by the people of Limhi, which is called the Book of Ether. Again, I'll stop. We have these plates, this record that God has preserved so that Moroni could then take it and abridge it and make it part of these other plates. And that this whole record would make up the Book of Mormon. These plates, again, if the story's real, these are literal plates. And these plates have things written on them by the people. At least this is Moroni's supposition. That this record, these plates, the writings on these plates, are written by a literal people. And this record was found by the people of Limhi, and it's called the Book of Ether. He continues, he says, And I suppose that the first part of this record which speaks concerning the creation of the world and also of Adam, an account from the time even to the great tower, and whatsoever things transpired among the children of men until that time is had among the Jews. Therefore I do not write those things which transpired from the days of Adam until that time, but they are had upon the plates, and whoso findeth them the same will have power that he may get the full account. And so in other words, we recognize that these plates... The record here goes back to Adam. Whoever's keeping these records, they started with the creation story that we, that we find in Genesis or something similar to it. He says, but behold, I give not a full account, but a part of the account I give from the tower down until they were destroyed. And on this wise do I give the account. And then he proceeds to give a genealogy. He's, he's naming, you know, so and so was the son of so and so, and so and so was his son, and so and so was his son so forth and so on. And then he gets to this part where he says, In Kib was the son of Orihah, who was the son of Jared. 
And then he continues. He says, which Jared came forth with his brother and their families with some others in their families from the great tower at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people and swore in his wrath that they should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. And according to the word of the Lord, the people were scattered. And the brother of Jared, being a large and mighty man, and a man highly favored of the Lord, Jared, his brother, said unto him, Cry unto the Lord, that he will not confound us, that we may not understand our words. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did cry unto the Lord. And the Lord had compassion upon Jared. Therefore he did not confound the language of Jared, and Jared and his brother were not confounded. Then Jared said unto his brother, Cry again unto the Lord, and it may be that he will turn away his anger from them who are our friends, that he confound not their language. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did cry unto the Lord, and the Lord had compassion upon their friends and their families, also that they were not confounded. So the chapter goes on, Jared and his brother are praying for others, praying for their families, praying for God to watch over them. And, and God speaks out to them and says, you're, you know, I'm going to bless thee. I'm going to bless your seed. I'm going to raise up unto me thy seed and the seed of thy brother and they who shall go with thee a great nation. And he goes on to make all these great promises. Now we have to kind of come to grips like these people land in the Americas. The, these very people who are at this tower. And if we don't take this story literally, if we say, ah, this story is not really a literal story, then we really have to reevaluate a bunch of the Book of Mormon narrative and allow much of it to be a myth. And then we have to explain how those people got to America and what's their story if they're really not connected to the brother Jared. We have to totally reevaluate stories of stones that were touched by the finger of Christ. We have to reevaluate ships that were tight like a dish. We have to reevaluate so much of this narrative that it becomes really risky. And, and I know some apologists will step in and I've heard this explanation that, that the great tower spoken of in ether chapter one doesn't necessarily have to be the Tower of Babel, even though the, the narrative is similar. But that doesn't make sense, because when you go to Ether chapter 2, you have Jared and his brother in verse 1. Listen, it says, And it came to pass that Jared and his brother and their families, and also the friends of Jared and his brother and their families, went down into the valley which was northward. And the name of the valley was Nimrod, being called after the mighty hunter. And, and there are several mentions of this Valley of Nimrod. And, and once we recognize that Nimrod is the main character in the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11, then it just becomes implausible without severe mental gymnastics to, to try and say these are two different events. And, and if you're going to take this story literal, there's just, there's just too many issues. And one of them is simply the timeline. The Book of Mormon and the Old Testament compel us to to create a timeline where the Tower of Babel takes place about, let's just roughly say, 6,000 years ago. The problem with that is that we know very well the development of language can historically be shown to go back at least 12,000 years. And in any historian, any scholar in this field or area, 
is going to be able to provide evidence to show that it goes back way further than that. And so, again, once you grasp that the timeline is an issue, the interpretation of this as a literal event then becomes a problem. And then you have to kind of tackle, like, what are the ways in which to work around this? And and I want to say, like, somebody I, I very much respect, Mike Ash, who is a, an apologist with Fair Mormon, also does a lot of things on his own. There's a lot of work by Mike Ash that I just think is amazing. One of those is a paper he wrote, um, which was about uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, essentially. And it had to do with Joseph Fielding Smith's view of evolution and Mike Ash does this article in Dialogue titled The Mormon Myth of Evil Evolution. And he just, just well-researched, goes through and shows how certain leaders in the church put their view of evolution as a heresy, as a loud and distinct position within Mormonism. Meanwhile, there were a multitude of other leaders outside of those one or two people who had a different view that unfortunately did not get the publicity that the the anti-evolution view got and just a really good good article. And, and Mike's done lots of work. And Mike has always been been nice to me, always been cordial to me. Um, in my in my rift with uh, my rift with Fair, uh, Mike has always just been nice and kind. And any any messages that I've I've gotten from him um, have always been uh, of the sincerest kindness that, that that I can keep speaking of those words in that way because I can't speak highly enough of of the the Mike Ash that I've gotten to know and have spoken to and have had interaction with and watched from afar. Um, he seems respectful. And, and again, I consider him a friend and Mike is the reason I keep talking about Mike Ash is because he's the one who's written, I think the most trying to tackle this issue. And so I, I preface as we go forward, I preface all that with, with this so that, that you guys will understand that I completely respect him and, and I'm not at all trying to like trash the perspective that he has, but rather I want to explore it and at least feel open in, in comfortable, like looking at these views and saying, does this really work? Does this really hold up? And so there's certainly some angles that I think we, we need to tackle. And one of these is one that, that Mike brings up. And it's this idea that in Genesis chapter 11, it's, it calls this tower, the tower of Babel or Babel. In, in the Book of Mormon, it only calls it the Great Tower. For whatever reason, the Book of Mormon story doesn't use that, that key moniker that Christianity and the Old Testament have assigned to this tower or this area as the Tower of Babel or Babel, rather just the Great Tower. And so it's this recognition that while the Book of Mormon is certainly talking about the Tower of Babel, it is telling the story somewhat differently, subtly differently, but still differently. Mike also points to the idea that multiple cultures speak of, of these, this tower being built and try to address the idea of languages being, being differentiated. And, and Mike makes the, the connection that when we find stories like this throughout multiple cultures, that it is imperative that we give weight to these stories having some merit to them. And the, and the same can be said of the flood story. The flood story goes with, goes with and is found among lots and lots of different cultures. Mike Ash, in one of his articles, he says, while I believe that, that with God, all things are possible and miracles really do happen, 
I also believe that God works within the framework of natural laws, and we are far from knowing all natural laws. He says the topic of how miracles may relate to natural laws will wait for another day. For now it's enough to know that shifting one's paradigm about the confusion of tongues does not equate to a rejection of miracles. And and I think Mike makes a really good point here. And I really applaud him for what he's saying. First, there's this recognition that God works within natural laws. And, and I find it interesting that the God of the Old Testament was able on a continual basis to do, to do these extraordinary, miraculous, almost fantasy or deeply mythical types of miracles, parting seas, um, helping a man build a ship so big that it can carry two of each animal, be made out of wood and not leak and not, and, and be able to deal with tons of other issues, right? This idea that, that there are miracles found, manna coming down from heaven, uh, tons of other ones, right? We've got talking donkeys and you name it. There's all these things in the Old Testament that just seem like so far beyond what our present day minds would say is realistic. What our present day minds would say, yeah, I, you know, I could kind of see that happening. And when you look at Christianity in the here and now, I mean, yeah, we hear of some people being healed here and there, but the miracles are certainly of a less dramatic nature that, that the miracles that are occur are ones that we can see within our natural eyes. Whereas in the Old Testament, they were these extraordinary events that, that for one to see, it would be like, wow, that is almost magical. And, and we've had to kind of let go of that in the here and now. And, and yet somehow as Latter-day Saints and, and certainly as Christians at large, we haven't really wrestled with this paradox of kind of grasping that those fantasy or fan, f- fantasy-like events, these, these supernatural events, that seems so unreasonable in the Old Testament. We just take them for granted. Meanwhile, we really recognize that those kinds of things just simply aren't going to happen in our day. And we don't really wrestle with why that discrepancy is there. And, and Mike here says, look, God works within a framework of natural laws. And while we don't know all those natural laws, we at least need to recognize that you know God's working within those. And, and I think what Mike is getting at is that a lot of the stories that are brought to us in Christianity in our canon come as very larger than life, extraordinary fantasy-like events. And I think he's giving some room here for us to kind of wrestle with the idea that maybe those things are myth. Maybe those things really aren't literal and that we need to do some more wrestling with what, what God is really capable of doing if he works through natural laws and perhaps letting go of some of the larger than life type of miracles that we read about in scripture. And, and he offers, there's three interpretations of the tower story that he offers. And I think this is, these are the three that, that most apologists would, would want to point us towards. And he says, number one, human language changed from a single tongue to multiple tongues in a miraculous rapid incident. Again, if you take the story literally, that's what you're left with. But, the reality is that is so highly unlikely and his, and there's so much historical evidence that mounts against it that that seems like it's the, the least plausible interpretation to make. The second one, and, and he points out that Hugh Nibley is kind of the first one to kind of talk about this, or at least within Mormonism talk about it. Hugh Nibley points out that confound 
means to mix up or to pour together, meaning mixed up with other people, culturally, linguistically, or otherwise. The brother of Jared was afraid that we may not understand our words. Words we cannot understand, notes Nibley. Maybe nonsense syllables or maybe in some foreign language, but in either case, they are notor words. The only way we can fail to understand our own words is to have words that are actually ours change their meaning among us. This is exactly what happens when people in hence languages are confounded. Nibley observes if every individual were to speak a tongue all of his own and so go off entirely by himself, the races would have been not merely scattered but quite annihilated. We must not fall into the old vice of reading into scripture things that are not there. Again, I think a glorious point to be made. We as Mormons are really good at reading into God's word and into the scriptures things that are not there. I would argue that that Mormonism has overreached on on 80%, 90% of its doctrine and theology. He continues... He says, Nibley and some modern scholars believe that all languages initially sprang from a single center. Other scholars disagree. Either way, the influx of foreign languages into a region could confound the dominant native language to a point that original meanings were lost. And, and again, I love the, the overarching points that Mike is making and that Hugh Nibley points out, yet that's a very distinctly different interpretation than, than what the Old Testament gives us in Genesis 11, but more importantly, significantly different than the interpretation that Mahanri Moriankamer, the brother of Jared, or Jared himself, is making in this story. And again, we, we have their writings. They were there if we take, if we take the Book of Mormon at its word and and again, don't want to sacrifice everything that Jared and his brother give us. If we don't want to put all that on the altar and let it go, then it would, then it's going to be quite the stretch to say, yes, there's a story in Ether chapter one and two, but something completely different is going on than what these guys are talking about. Mike offers kind of a number three. He says, per last week's discussion, it's possible that the confounding of tongues is an etiological myth or legend that attempts to explain the divergence of languages. Anciently, such traditions were passed from generation to generation, and in a pre-scientific era, were never questioned for historical or scientific accuracy. While Ether's tradition maintained that the Jaredite language was not confounded, traditions from other parts of the world maintained that Old Hebrew or Proto-Indo-European were the original Adamic languages, and that they were not confounded because some people did not participate in building the tower and therefore kept the language alive. And again, Mike here is hitting on the idea that, you know, this just might be a myth. The trouble is, it's it's Jared and his brother who are telling us the story of how they built boats and had stones and Jesus' finger touches them and they come over to this, come over to, to the Americas. I mean, if we're going to take this as a complete myth, again, we're going to have to lay a lot of our Book of Mormon stories that we tell ourselves on the, the, the figurative altar and just let them go, just sacrifice them. And, and Mike makes a good point that we always have to kind of keep in the back of our mind 
that that the book of Ether, as he puts it, he says, we don't have the brother of Jared's personal journal. We have Joseph's translation, which was dictated into King James vernacular, of Moroni's abridgment, of Mosiah's translation of Ether's long-after-the-fact traditions. Perhaps the Tower Saga was part of the Jaredite lore, which Ether interpreted according to his cultural heritage and recorded on his plates. Now, for me, this is a struggle. I mean, I can read certain stories like Genesis chapter 1, and it just comes off as a third-person mythological story. But when I read Ether and Jared and his brother, I, I, I just feel... Like it's not really a third person story while some of the things being told are in the third person because we have a Bridgers that this is a first person story on the plates and I get it. You know, Mike says that, you know, ancient redactors or Bridgers, which include Moroni and Mormon were editors who often added to or adjusted elements to fit their view of the story or to square with the conclusions they were attempting to project in and I, I hear that it just, I'm, I'm sitting here in my own mind still wrestling with like trying to make that work, trying to say, look, you know, Ether is just passing along a ton of myths. He has no clue really how he got to where he got to. And all the guys after him who are abridging and composing these writings into a smaller, a smaller work are just repeating this stuff. And, you know, to be honest, Jared may not be real. The brother of Jared may not be real, or maybe they're real, but the stories <laughs> just didn't happen the way they're told. It, it just feels like we really don't want to go there. That, that sure, for apologetic reasons, it's nice to say those things, but the moment we actually go to that space, then a whole lot of things go up for grabs. And, and the progressive Mormon all of a sudden has a lot more room to ask us to slow down and not boast of so many things that we think we know. And and so Michael concludes, he says, while some believers may prefer either a literal or mythological approach to this topic, we should be careful to understand that a mythological approach doesn't mean that the Nephites were fictitious. Ancient histories and scriptures can contain mythical elements as well as actual history. Brigham Young did not believe that Adam was created from the dust, calling it a baby story. And President Kimball said that the scriptural account of Eve being taken from Adam's rib was figurative. If the Book of Mormon was written by real ancient people, it should contain ancient mythological elements. Again, I would agree 100% with Mike here. I, I completely agree with having room to take stories like the, the Garden of Eden and the fall and the creation as mythical. I love this quote by Brigham Young that Adam being created from the dust was a baby story. I love that President Kimball's quote has made it into our gospel doctrine manual where we recognize that Eve being taken from Adam's rib was figurative. At least President Kimball's opinion was that it was figurative. And I agree with Mike that even if the Book of Mormon was written by real ancient people, it should contain ancient mythological elements. That's fine. The trouble here is that we're taking one of the quote-unquote real ancient people that the Book of Mormon's written by and now saying that he might be mythological. And, and that seems to be further than what the Book of Mormon is really giving us room to do. And more importantly, way beyond the room 
that the church wants us to have or give us. So while fair and other apologists feel empowered to make the story mythical, we need to recognize that to some extent the church does not take that interpretative liberty. There, there's a, a several examples within uh, LDS manuals, leaders' quotes, teachings that impose a literal Tower of Babel and a literal flood and other literal stories that that many Latter-day Saints would prefer to see as mythological. So a couple of things. There's there's one here. It says because of the prophet Joseph Smith, Latter-day Saints have additional knowledge that confirms the reality of these world-changing historical events. This author, this was in a LDS magazine, one of the periodicals of the church. This author continued by saying, I find it unfortunate that we look to scholars to explain God's dealings with man, how much better it is to trust God's own word. There's a there's a website uh, called Ask Gramps, and, and Gramps is this very in-the-box guy. Obviously, you know, from his name, he, he's... He's using, implies that he's an older man with grandkids. But you can ask Gramp Book of Mormon questions. Now, of course, he's not official. He doesn't speak for the church. But he says the Book of Mormon presents the myth of the Tower of Babel because it really happened. If you would doubt this event, you need to call into question the transmitters of the story. Joseph translated it from plates handled by 11 others. Are they lying? Moroni translated it from plates handed down through centuries. Is he lying? Ether recorded a story that was over a millennia old. I suppose if there's a place for faithful skepticism, it would be here. Did Ether just record an old legend passed down to him? President Monson has said on record, My faith did not come to me through science, and I will not permit so-called science to destroy it. But again, we have language development going back at least 12,000 years and arguably further, and this simply predates the Tower of Babel. And we also have the Lord himself, Genesis eleven six through 9. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth. And I get it, we got, we've got room to, to take God Speaking and, and say, look, that's just people trying to explain the unexplainable and they're, and they're putting it in God's words when it really may not have been him speaking, at least not directly. But when we recognize that we have such liberty, if we take liberty with God's words here and they don't mean what we thought they mean, then we then must see such liberty with most, if not all of God's words. It's, it's one thing to overreach on God's words when room is there in them. And we've overreached as a people. It's another thing altogether to say God is misquoted. And sometimes I fear that that's what we do. There's an article written that discusses the Tower of Babel from a historical and scientific standpoint. Date of the Tower of Babel and some theological implications by Paul H. Seeley. He says, if we assume the story in Genesis 11, 1 through 9 is accurately describing an actual historical event, the narrative gives us five facts which enable us to date the event. One... The event took place in Shinar, at Babylon in particular. Two, the event involved the building of a city with a tower. Three, the tower was constructed of baked brick. Four, the mortar used was asphalt. Five, the tower was very probably a ziggurat. When we employ these five facts to date the building of the Tower of Babel, we discover from archaeological data that the events occurs too late in history 
to be the origin of all languages on earth. And there's this idea, I mean, he goes on to talk about um, the building of Tower of Babel can be dated approximately between 3500 and 2400 BC. The, the problem arises, which arises is that when Genesis 11, 1 through 9 is interpreted in context, it is saying that until the building of the Tower of Babel, that is until 3500 BC at the earliest, all people on earth spoke the same language. It is quite evident from archaeology, however, that this is not the case. He goes on, he says, just as scientists can explain the beautiful phenomenon of the rainbow by using the law of optics, which undoubtedly existed long before Noah's time, so linguistic scientists can show that many languages of mankind existed long before the period to which the Tower of Babel can be assigned. Mormons believe the Jaredites made their journey to America about 2200 BC. No reputable linguistic scholar today accepts the Tower of Babel story as an explanation for the multiplicity of languages, for their origins, or for the date of their origins. The simple fact is that there are writings in many parts of the ancient world, China, Mesopotamia, Egypt, in widely different languages dating from a thousand years before the supposed time of the Tower. This uncontroverted fact shows that the Babel story is only a myth. He says, but it is not only the languages of all the world that supposedly originated at the Tower of Babel, but also all the peoples of the world. Genesis 11, 8 through 9. In other words, in order to accept the story of the Tower as literal and historical, one must believe that there are no other peoples on earth at the time. Such a belief is contrary to everything we know about early periods in human history. He continues, he says, if faithful Latter-day Saints should suggest that the Tower of Babel must have been therefore much earlier than 2200 BC, they have a problem that Ether 1, 6-33 lists the generations from Jared who left the Tower to the last Jaredite, and there are only 28 generations. The last surviving Jaredite, Omni 121, was still alive sometime after the Mulekites arrived in America about 600 BC. To account for 28 generations between 2200 BC in 600 BC, the average generation would have to be 60 years apart. Guys, think about that for a minute. To make the confusion of tongues a thousand years or more earlier, to account for the Chinese, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, every Jaredite father listed in the genealogy would have to be over 120 years old before fathering his oldest child. Notice also that among the Jaredite generations listed in Ether 1 are two Hebrew names, Aaron and Levi. One must ask how such Hebrew names appeared in America when Jaredites did not speak Hebrew, but rather a language which had not been confounded. Most Christians, except for the fundamentalist, evangelical, and errantist, can accept the mythical nature of the Tower of Babel story. They can read it as allegory, an object lesson about human pride, but Mormons must and do accept it as literal and historical. So we're left, we're left really in a conundrum. If the Book of Mormon is a literal history, that there really was a man named Nephi, there really was a man named Moroni and Mormon and Alma, Captain Moroni and those guys, then where do we draw the line? Like, like which guys are real and which ones are mythical? mythical stories and where do you start and stop that and and if you're going to dismiss ether at least the very the very front half of it as a mythological 
figurative narrative, then again, you're going to have to give up a lot. And so I know that we, we debate things like the book of Abraham. I know we debate things like Joseph's treasure digging. And there's so many things we go, man, you know, if, if, if this is our history, if this is the way this all went down, there's just no way to believe. And yet I'm telling you that I have a much easier time working with those things than I do delving into the Tower of Babel in the flood. And and I'm just here to tell you, like, those two issues alone make it incredibly difficult to take the Mormon narrative as a literal narrative. And so I think, and I, and I think, you know, you listen to Patrick Mason, you listen to Richard Bushman and Terrell Givens and Adam Miller, the, the church isn't to a point yet where its leaders or its apologists are quite ready to validate this. But the church's scholars are already asking us to reevaluate what it means to be scripture, what it means to have truth while wrestling with historicity. And, and we're going there. We're heading that way, guys. And so I know when, when people hear this episode, there'll be people who say, Bill, these are literal stories. What are you doing? And, and I'm simply telling you, I can't make literal stories for these work. And so for a long time, I've just put things like this on the shelf and, and certainly respect again, Mike Ash and, and other apologists who have tried to say, look, we're going to have to make room to interpret these things differently, but also somewhere still drawing a line that some of these guys have got to be historical. And and I'm simply saying to Mike and others, you've already opened the box. You, you've already opened Pandora's box. You've already opened it up. You've already said, look, I agree with you guys. A literal Tower of Babel story simply doesn't work. You've already gone that far. The only thing stopping you from going further is that you're working backwards from needing to maintain some level of historicity with the Book of Mormon. And so you're choosing some other place to draw a line in the sand. And I'm saying that like when you take not just a part here or a part there, but but the whole, which is the sum of the parts, when you take the whole of Mormonism and all its paradoxes and contradictions, it, it's, its conflict, then I think we're just going to have to become more vulnerable and be willing to just kind of take it all apart and say, look, I know we were all raised with this story. I know that men who thought that they talked to God told us some of this stuff. I know that some other men whose predecessors they thought talked to God gave us some of this stuff. The reality is we're going to have to back off. And, and as Patrick Mason said in my interview with him recently, we're going to, there is no time to wait. We are going to have to reinterpret and redefine what a prophet is. And the reason Patrick says that is reasons just like this Tower of Babel. When you hold on to the idea that Jesus talks directly to these men, when you hold on to the ideas that, that, that men in the Book of Mormon are all historical, literal men, when you hold those things, there are so many other ripples in the water that that affects that force you to hold so much ground that is simply, simply untenable. And so it is now the time to redefine Mormonism. The scholars are already pushing for it. Not only scholars, scholars that the church trust, that the church looks up to, are already asking and desiring it. 
And so now what it's going to take is it's going to take some brave leaders and it's going to take some vulnerability on the apologist end to say, look, I know we thought we knew these things. I know we told you that we knew these things. We're not so sure anymore. And it's time that we all look inwardly and reevaluate what all this means. And, uh, and it's my prayer that we'll do that. It's my hope that we'll do that. It's my desire that we will wrestle with Mormonism in a way that we take our comfortable beliefs and we set those aside as a lesser priority than the pursuit of truth. That we set those aside willing to open our heart, open our minds, open our ears to positions that make us really uncomfortable. To stand back and say, are those positions actually way more valid? And if Mormonism really is truth, if Mormonism truly welcomes truth wherever it is, then I, then I hope at some point Mormonism will reflect that value, that virtue by wrestling with itself in the coming years. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Say what they will now you say